Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast. A weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep up to date on the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today on Seneca, we're talking about rhino horn. First, you'll hear a conversation that my co-host Jeremy Goldcorn had during his trip to South Africa a couple of months ago for the Africa-China Reporting Project's annual forum in Johannesburg. There, he spoke with two journalists who worked on stories about the trade in illegal wildlife products, the Namibian journalist John Kobler. Hi there. And Shri. Hello. An environmental reporter from China who has spent many years now in Africa. Then, in a separate conversation I recorded here in Durham, North Carolina, we'll hear from someone who has done a good deal of work about rhino horn to provide some context and bust some myths. Hi, I'm Nicole Elizabeth Barnes. I'm an assistant professor of history at Duke, and I teach Chinese medicine, global health, and uh, history of gender. First, over to you, Jeremy. So, John, you are a Namibian journalist. You're from Namibia. Uh, you've done all kinds of journalism, a lot of it investigative and many different kinds of media. You know, mm-hmm. you've worked for the New York Times and for Namibian newspapers and everything in between. And Shri, you are a Chinese journalist who's mm-hmm. spent fairly significant chunks of time in Africa working on the story. Could I ask one of you to tell me how you you started working together? Well, the idea of involving Chinese reporters in uh, our investigations in Africa came about after the 2013 uh, Global Investigative Journalism Conference in Rio. Um, We started running into problems um, because mostly none of us actually speak Mandarin and um, just those small things started tripping us up. We couldn't really figure out the relationship between people. You could... um, see where the players are, but you couldn't really see how they fitted together. You, you were looking at poaching and trading wildlife yes. products. It had become clear since 2012, and especially 2014, that a certain fashion, a certain part of the Chinese population in Namibia were playing quite a major role in the trade. We had a major bust in March 2014. There were strong indications before that that, you know, the Chinese were actually, some Chinese were driving the trade and were buying up the horns, buying up ivory. And this is rhino horns and elephant rhino horn, ivory. Rhino horn, ivory, pangolin skins, uh, a few other things. I mean, there were, you know, tortoises were also being bought up and exported to illegally to China, as well as certain, you know, colorful bird species that they seem to covet for feathers. So... We had to try and figure out how all these people, you know, fitted together and how they relate to each other by drilling into their social media accounts and whatever we could find on them. 
So we needed somebody who could breach that language barrier firstly. So the idea came about that we would try and send in a Chinese reporter undercover. We had the first guy out, Hong. Um, at the time, we didn't know enough to for him to be really efficient. Um, but a year later, we got Shi Yi out, and well, she did brilliantly. Uh, she actually managed to bust a corrupt cop for uh, illegally trying to sell her a lion skin. So yeah, she she collared a crooked cop. Wow! And Shiri, so w- can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this project? And uh, in China, I do environmental stories. I report some pollutions in China. And uh, <coughs> before I come to Africa, we read also on news. You know, there's some problems. Um, people always criticize Chinese people like you're involved in you because of your demand that's driving um like uh, elephants or rhinos wiped out in some places in Africa. So as a journalist, I'm curious about that. I want to know they choose. And so what was the first piece of work that you did? How did you approach the story working together? We used she basically to try and figure out um, firstly just what was going on. Um, it, this is, you know, organized crime. So it's not, you know, it's very difficult to get to. So we had a list of people, you know, were suspected of being involved in the trade. And we asked her to go and meet them and just chat with them, pretend to be just a tourist and interested in doing business, basically working undercover. It's like an you know, undercover cop and just kind of get us to first base, um, just get the names and you know parties involved, anything that we could use as as a point of departure in you know sending investigations along. A lot of the stuff you know initially was inconclusive, but you know over time you know like the little pieces of the puzzle you know started fitting together. Stuff that she did for us, uh, for example, we sent her into a um, suspected brothel and hotel in the port of Walfish Bay. At the time, there was nothing that you know really made us sit up and say, "Oh, yeah, yeah, we got it now." But uh, we kept an eye on the place, and now, quite recently, they were actually bust for uh, illegal possession of pangolin that they were about to butcher on. So it's on a brothel and a hotel, and they're also got a sideline in yeah. illegal wildlife products. They they make quite a you know, nice profit out of. Uh, serving up exotic dishes, this being pangolin. And Shri, what was this? I mean, this sounds, you're involved with criminals. I mean, was this scary? Did you ever feel that you were in danger trying to get these people to talk to you? Um, when I work with John, I try to not to jump to uh, um, conclusions. Like, even I've been told this is organized crime, but try to believe to what, what I've heard, what I've seen, and I believe the things based on evidence. So I've warned, like, you you are getting involved in something really dangerous, but that's not how I feel. So you weren't scared, is the answer. <laughs> a, a little bit, I try to be careful, because you know you might meet some people uh, really uh, could put you in danger, but um, I just that's just my job, so you just need to be careful. It's like I, I do investigations in China, no matter what, you have to be very, very careful. And the, the, the gangs or the, the, the people that you investigated, I mean, how big is this? Is it one big gang or are there multiple gangs? Uh, what's the scale of the business and, and how do they operate? I mean, you know, 
can you take me through you know a, a month or a year in the life of a a wildlife product you know illegal wildlife product trader what we're looking at we suspect there to be four or five syndicates these are organized in layers you have your poachers on the ground, and these are interchangeable. You know, if you can, there's a point in busting the poachers. The guys these are just local guys making a small amount of money. Exactly, yeah. they make maybe you know a thousand dollars per rhino that they kill, uh, but they get commissioned to go and do the hits. So you have you know, your poaching syndicates on the ground. Uh, they more or less organized into four or five syndicates, as far as we know, uh, in Namibia anyway. And then above them, you have um, the collectors, the people who basically collect the horns. And then beyond them, above them, you have uh, the real middlemen who then deal with the buyers. In terms of the Chinese syndicates, I think there might be two or three. It might actually be one. It's very difficult because they're not organized as you know you would think, you know, in a kind of military fashion and a strict hierarchy. It's opportunistic. Some groups come together and do a deal and then break up and some of them disappear. And then people you haven't seen work together before suddenly work together with a guy you have investigated before. So it's highly opportunistic. But overall, you know, I think we're looking at one large syndicate, one that's organized along regional lines. And it's highly sophisticated, but it's, you know, it's broken up in cellular fashion. So, you know, if you catch one of them, it's unlikely he knows what's going on beyond his immediate superior or people who command him. So we're slowly but surely working our way up this particular tree. And so, okay, they, they these syndicates, they'll buy a rhino horn or an elephant tusk from a, a, a local poacher. And then how do they get it to China? It gets moved in various ways. We had... Uh, four Chinese, three Chinese getting caught at the airport with 14 rhino horns in their two suitcases. They had nothing else in there except rhino horn and women's clothes. So I think they'd actually, you know, smuggled out horn previously uh, in the same fashion and not been caught. Maybe they paid off the right guy, you know, at the, at the scanner. This time they got bust. Then it also gets moved out in the guise of... Shipments of fish, shipments of tinder. Um, timber seems to be, you know, a, a, a big favorite. Stick some rhino horns with the wood, basically. Yeah, you fill up a container with... a container. Exactly. You fill up a container with the hardwood, you know, you put it right in the front. Nobody's going to unpack that, you know, that container uh, to see what's in there. They're supposed to x-ray these things before they go out, but they don't x-ray everything. And, you know, the smugglers are smart. I mean, they know the way around... The uh, the harbors they know which guy to bribe or induce in some way to not scan their particular uh, container. So it, um, they can't scan every container. That would basically slow down, you know, the traffic in, in any harbor. If you know what the Hong Kong harbor looks like, you know, stuff going in there is also supposed to be scanned. Same here. Not possible. Yeah. Not. Just not. What's the volume we're talking about? Like how many rhino horns a year and elephant tusks? Hard to say, but you know we know that um, they've killed thirty thousand elephant in Tanzania in the last year. I am not quite clear yet what the extent of the damage has been in Namibia, because in Namibia they've been going for the critically endangered black rhino. From what I pick up in the chatter out there is that black rhino horn, because it's you know wild rhino, is valued slightly more than white rhino horn. 
uh, because it's more exotic, it's it's scarcer. It's actually no different, you know. There's no difference between the two different types of horn. But I mean, they're all basically like fingernails. It's really. <laughs> yeah, it's it's keri- it's keratin. Yeah. You know, it's it's absolutely just you know it's nails. It's yeah. you know compressed hair. But you know, it's a it's a it's a natural product, and it appears to be a massive premium in China for rare natural products, like ivory, rare woods, anything that's not artificially produced. So, um, Shuri, I mean, who, who are the people who are buying it? It's I a, wish we knew. It's a lot of it to answer because uh, John's been doing this in the past two years. I I was in Namibia. I've been in Namibia like a month. So I have not fully understand how they organized this and uh, how they get this out of Africa and through Asia and finally to China. But I also I have some reports in China. I know there are some people think that's a good investment because um, if if you yeah they, they think as long uh, it's it's endangered animals and they buy that they this is a this is a way to, to just just a good investment maybe in a few years the price go up. It's basically speculation. So it's not for medicine. They're buying it and they're sticking it in their basement or whatever, holding on to it, yes. thinking um, that it's a valuable commodity that they can based, sell in the future. Um, there are some NGOs in China, they actually investigate this. They try to understand. So ivory and a rhino horn, definitely not. I mean, rhino horn, traditional, we know uh, Chinese medicine use that. But nowadays, I don't think this is the the biggest reason so we've seen uh, like because now people all have iPhone have iPad and uh, this all go online so it's very hard to trace that because it's high depend high technology but we've seen some people if if they want to sell their products they'll put advertisement online and based on this advertisements you know they just they may use this like they they curve a piece of art and they sell it so it's not used for medicine huh that, that's interesting because i don't think that is uh known uh, you know w- widely known i think I, I think the myth of rhino for example you know uh, being used as an aphrodisiac that's thoroughly been debunked this is purely commercial this is absolutely in my view driven by speculation um Investing in the rhino horn, you know, commissioning it on the rhino horn and, you know, stashing that horn. Say you spend $50,000 here on the African side to um, have a rhino shot. Um, you smuggle the horn out. Maybe cost you another $20,000 to do so. You sit in this horn for another two years and then you sell it for half a million US dollars. It's a self-fulfilling pr- prophecy if you... And the guy th- who buys it might be thinking the same thing. Exactly. I, I think what is going on is that you have syndicates coming together, you know, think of them as investment syndicates, putting together a, a, a project, if you will, and having um, someone come out in Africa and commission the whole hit, move the horn back there and basically sit on it. You know, if you keep on killing the animal that produces the horn, especially with so few of them left now, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you keep on killing them, of course, pretty soon there will no, be no rhino left, and then that horn will be hugely, hugely valuable. I mean, it, it, it's obvious from the commercial farming that's going on with white rhino 
in South Africa. You have all you have lots of farmers who have been buying up uh, rhinos and breeding them commercially, dehorning them and stashing the horn in the hope that they will be able to sell that horn for these astronomical prices that you know is being bandied about in the media, anything up to hundred thousand dollars per kilo. And they believe that they will make their investments back that way. So I think also people in China are doing the same thing. They buying up horn and stashing it. It's it's like diamonds, you know, if you can convert a whole lot of cash that would otherwise be difficult to explain if it was sitting in your bank account. But you know, what does a rhino horn cost? I mean how much space does it take up? You hide it somewhere in your garden, it's a couple of million uh, yuan and you keep it there for two, three years and then one day you take it out when you need cash and Hey, you make a nice return on that. But is not the commercial farming of rhinos, you know, for their horns, is that not a way to actually end this thing? Because, I mean, if you have enough people farming rhino horns, won't it destroy the market value of it because it's it's too common? That's the argument from the commercial breeder side, that, you know, if they were to be allowed to trade in horn as they had been doing up until 95 before... Uh, South Africa imposed the ban on it and scientists you know, helped impose that ban they believe that they would be able to uh, ruin the market by you know, bringing so much product on the market that prices would immediately drop from say $100,000 a kilo to say $10,000 a kilo. They still make money at $10,000 a kilo however there's a huge problem with that it's a simple thing called you know, law of demand. If you make a valuable product a valuable scarce product more widely available for a cheaper price yes the price will go down but in due course demand will rise enormously and there's just no way we can ever breed enough rhinos white rhinos and dehorn them to ever supply in the demand of say four five hundred million people in asia now all wanting a piece of rhino horn right not possible yeah i agree with that interesting now um based on what i've know um it's not just China, it's also some other Asian country like Vietnam. It's, it's, it's already the biggest market for rhino horn. Mm. So you think about how many people in this countries and even 1% of the whole population interested in this product. So how many rhino or elephant will we have to farm to fit the, the market? You mentioned the Asian market. So that was a thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, how much of this is China compared to, say, Vietnam, which also has the reputation of being uh, a place that buys a lot of rhino horn, I think. Um, do, do you, uh, you know, is it is it just China or is it Vietnam? Are there, is it Korea, Japan? I mean, are there other Asian markets involved? Vietnam appears to be the largest buyer and consumer, if you will, of rhino horn. But ivory is still very popular. I mean, if you spend enough time looking around, you'll discover that there's a lively trade in ivory in France, for example. So it's by no means restricted to China only. I said, I guess China is just um, the biggest market at the moment. A lot of people and a lot of rich people. A lot of rich people, a lot of newly rich people looking to acquire a little objects to art, um, fancy ivory chopsticks, whatever, something you know that's not artificial. Yeah. In the West, people are kind of more conscious of the price that the environment pays, that the elephant pay in general. I mean, there's more awareness of, of uh, the plight of elephants and rhino 
in Africa than in Asia, I think. It's a, it's a communication barrier as well that um, contributes inadvertently to the demand, the growth in demand anyway. So the, the two of you have been you know, writing articles about this, which obviously has some kind of advocacy role. You're, you're trying to stop this. But aside from journalism, what other initiatives are you aware of uh, going on to, to try and put a stop to the poaching and, and, and to uh, reduce market demand? Wildaid.org, uh, for example, first took the approach that you know we should try and combat the poaching on the ground to counter poaching. But clearly, that is of limited effectiveness. We've seen that very clearly in South Africa. You know, you they've been shooting literally hundreds of Mozambicans in Kruger Park over the past few years, and it's not done much to stop you know the the poaching. So, the only way to effectively address it is basically to reduce demand. And in that, while that has been, you know, employing people like uh, uh, Jackie Chan, other famous, you know, Chinese characters to go on TV and try and communicate the message that, you know, don't buy ivory, don't buy a rhino horn, um, you to skill the demand for it. It's the only way you're going to be able to stop it. Otherwise, I'm afraid it's, you know, it's a losing battle. I mean, I, I perce- I'm not really an environmental reporter as such. I'm... I'm an investigative reporter. You know, my forte is more mining, oil and gas. People doing dodgy sh**. People doing dodgy shit, You know, financial stuff, you know, offshore um, corruption and stuff like this. But, you know, what I'm trying to get across to people is that, you know, a rhino poaching and an elephant poaching is not poaching. It's organized crime. And if I can get that across to people... It is organized crime. It's not poaching. If I can get that across to people, well, then I've achieved something, I think. So, but I think I'm getting there. Yeah. What, what about in China, Shri? How, how is your work on this received in China? I mean, do people think that you've just bought some kind of Western pinko liberal line? Or is there growing sympathy for, for the work on endangered wildlife? I think... You know, in the past few years, I've seen many, many NGOs. They try to just educate people. Like, if you go to some big cities in China, you think there are big advertisements on subway bus station. There's an uh, interesting advertisement, like there's some um, pop stars, they uh, they bite their nails and they say, uh, you you eat rhino horns just like you eat your nails, so what's the point? We, we have to save that. And now there are more and more young people get involved in that. They they start to realize this is not something you, if you consume wildlife products, this is something you are proud of. And uh, you've seen many, many young people join or they they have their, um, they establish their own NGOs, they have their uh, project to try to influence people, their friends, their families. So if, and nowadays, um, if this is some, something happen, like if some wild animal are being uh, poached or killed for some reason, and people post the picture online, and it's really raised a lot of attention, and people are really um, upset about that. So, uh, do you think there's a generation gap? Um, I mean, are, you know, are younger people much more likely to be sympathetic to the things you've been writing about, to uh, and to not want to buy rhino horns and ivory and older people 
kind of stuck in a previous way of thinking? I don't think so, but I think people do grow up a different environment, different time. And uh, if you think about like thirty years, so many people, so many Chinese people, family are still um, poor, and people still worry about will the next meal was. And at that time, you won't realize. I mean, you go to the forest, you go to the mountain, you see there's a wild animal. You you might shoot them for for your food. So I just think the the whole environment are different. And young people nowadays they have more opportunities to um, to talk to. I mean, to get to know what's really happened out of uh, China, not just the problem in China. So there's uh, the chance they might um, just uh, talk about the environment much more. But I can't say it's a gap between different generations because you've seen uh, many middle-aged people and old people. They all love their nature, not wild animals. What we've seen in Namibia kind of goes the opposite way. You know, poverty is a big problem, and it's you know the main driver behind it. And and then of course there's just opportunistic greed as well. But you know the various syndicates that I have now um, been chasing down are always organised in groups of you know um, the poachers are in um, the groups of three. One is always in his twenties, one is always in his thirties, and one is always in his forties. So it's sort of a you know, intergenerational, cross-generational thing. But there it's just plainly to make money. However, the advent of social media, especially uh, Facebook, for example, has been very um, useful in getting the word out. And you can see there's a, there's a schism out there. There's, there's one group of things, you know, well, what's the point of having rhinos if we can't make money out of them? The Namibian, South African, and uh, Zimbabwean government want to trade the, the rhino horn and ivory that they have to try and, you know, get some more cash into the coffers. At the same time, you have um, the better educated people um, becoming much more aware of it and becoming much more outspoken and opposed to the idea of just slaughtering a rhino just for quick cash. Because that's what the guys do. I mean, they behave exactly the same way that diamond smugglers do. The moment they make a sale, they go and buy a flashy car, flashy clothes. You know, they show off. They burn through that cash within three months, and then they have to go back and do it again. So they they're making themselves, you know, quite unpopular. It's a, been a slow process, and unfortunately, the animals are still dying at too fast a rate to say that we're turning around this thing around. But I I'm hopeful that you know if we just keep on doing this, and that somewhere we will be able to turn the corner and stem the flow, stem this tide of of red that's you know, been wiping out the game. But you are optimistic. I have to be. You know, if <laughs> I weren't, I would be so damn depressed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think so. I mean, I, I, I've been very... I've taken two years of my life now and dedicated it to this particular investigation. Normally, I don't take more than a month on an investigation, but this one is different. It's so deeply hidden, and there's so many... Uh, in aspects of it because it's you know transnational product moves from from Namibia all the way to Zambia and then maybe get smuggled out via Mombasa or Dar es Salaam or Nakano or Maputo uh, and then enters you know China via uh, Vietnam it takes a long time to figure out all these things but just in publicizing what I do 
um, by way of reports, just the response I get, you know, it's much more positive these days. Initially, people are saying, ah, what the hell, you know, what are you wasting your time for? Just shoot them all. And nowadays, people are saying, well, you know, what can we do to help? And that's been a change. So I am hopeful. I'm carefully optimistic. Carefully optimistic. <laughs> what about you, Shri? Same as John, I have to. If, if you don't believe it, I mean, what's the point of our work? So that, that's something we have to. And we do see there's more and more people that are aware of that. So that's a good sign. Okay, I've got a last question for the two of you. What are you working? Are you working on something together next? Uh, and if, if you are, what, 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 what is it? Not yet. Well, I hope you. I hope you. My investigation is now taking me to Zambia, and I would love to involve Shiyi in that if she can find the time. But you know, and, and this oh, is don't still poaching. That. Then if some if someone heard of that, they might know. <laughs> 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 They'll be careful. This was a strange Chinese yeah. coming. <laughs> they, they, you know, I can't discuss everything. Well, let's hope they don't hear this. But yeah. yeah, I mean, all the indications are that you know, um, Zambia plays a major role. There appears to be a, a, a Democratic Republic of Congo aspect to it as well. So that's basically where the blood spur is leading me to now. So. Yeah, I'd like to involve either she or one of her pretty colleagues. You know, <laughs> girls work better because, you know, your your Chinese buyers are typically young men in you know, the late 20s, early 30s, uh, living in foreign countries where the locals don't speak, you know, Mandarin. So having a pretty girl to talk to, hey, it works, you know. <laughs> okay, last, last question. If yeah. one of our listeners wants to do something about this, what can they do? You know, in China or, you know, in South Africa or in the United States or Europe? Don't buy it. Tell anyone you know, don't buy it. And if you see someone selling, you report it. Absolutely. And, and put the word out that, you know, um, poaching of rhino, poaching of elephant is not just poaching for, you know, human need. It's organized crime. You are aiding, abetting um, the really dark side of humanity and um, it's your moral duty to report it to the authorities. And, uh, you know, um, in terms of organizations, is there an organization or one or more that you can recommend that's doing good work if people want to donate something? You can definitely um, donate to Wild Aid. Um, I work for an organization called oxpeckers.org. And we'll link to that website, yeah. Yeah, environmental investigation. You can, you know, uh, donate to them. They help me pay for the diesel for my Land Rover and for my uh, food and upkeep out there in the bush. Very um, expensive, I bet. It's so time consuming. All, all that clip drift. <laughs> 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 no, you don't do clip drift, but you know, the Land Rover is it's heavy on fuel. Um, uh, it's it's time. That's the most expensive commodity because you know it's it's a slow moving thing. It's this thing, like I said. Previously, an uh, investigation like this would take me two, three months. It's now entering its third year. So, But I'm going to stick to it until I'm getting to the bottom of it. Well, John Hobler, Shri, it's been a real pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you so much for being on our show. And um, best of luck with uh, whatever you get up to next. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you very much. <laughs> So now let's hear from Nicole Barnes, the historian at Duke, who I introduced briefly at the beginning of the show. Nicole is going to tell us about Rhino Horn's actual place in the traditional East Asian pharmacopoeia. Don't believe everything you've read about it. 
uh, as well as her ideas about why people actually buy it and her take on efforts in China and other East Asian countries to stop the trade in rhino horn. So let me let me start off with a really basic question. So is this idea that I think we've all heard before that demand for rhino horn is being primarily driven by demand in East Asia, specifically from China, from Hong Kong, from Vietnam, is that essentially correct? Yes, yes, that is where the demand is centered. Uh, it's largely for rhino horn specifically, it's largely in Vietnam. Oh, really? I, mean, mm-hmm. I guess that probably comes as a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, Vietnam yes. isn't as wealthy of a country as China. Right. Yeah, it is. But um, that's where the a recent study from September 2013 uh, found that the average consumer is an urban man in Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, over 40, who is a businessman and wants to purchase these things as luxury gifts for social status. Uh, luxury gifts for social status. I mean, because mm-hmm. you know, what we usually hear is that it's being used as an aphrodisiac or as a cure for erectile dysfunction. Is that is that what it's really for? No, no. That's a huh. rumor that Western media picked up, and it's actually not purchased for that at all. In not that I know of in East Asia. So where did this come from? I mean, is this just another in a long line of cruel rumors intended to emasculate the Asian male? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I can't. I'm not, I don't know if I could track it very specifically, but I'm certain that the Western media line about things it, it gets sidetracked very easily into narratives that play into China bashing or Chinese medicine bashing, anti-scientific superstitious, um, hogwash kinds of narratives. And the Chinese on their part are forced into this narrative that it's valuable because of a long tradition, a long historical tradition, because that's just the very nature of Asian nationalisms that in response to the West saying, we are the progressive, the powerful ones, the Asians tended to respond with, we are the ones with the strong traditions, with a sense of cultural essence that is uh, precious and unique and needs to be preserved. So, I mean, they are definitely aware then of the kind of criticism that's coming increasingly from domestically as well as from international organizations, but but increasingly from conservation-minded people within those countries as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But And you're saying that, that the condemnations are, are landing on their ears and then provoking a kind of response that invokes tradition. Absolutely. Which then yes. kind of maybe reinforces this idea that, well, this is just a story of uh, we moderns against... right. Right. Anti-modern. When, in fact, the demand for it is specifically a modern phenomenon. It's these urban-based elite businessmen who want to climb higher in their own social ranking. When these people do invoke tradition in defense of this practice, do they have anything to go on? Is there anything that does, for example, rhino horn show up in the traditional Chinese pharmacopias, in, in for example, the Materia Medica of uh, Li Shijun? Li Shijun, yeah, <laughs> Li yeah, yes. Yes, actually, uh, Li Shijun's uh, Ben Cao Gangmu, or his uh, famous historical pharmacopoeia, which was published first in 1596, uh, was almost repeated verbatim in Heo Jun's Dongyi Bogam, the, the Korean classic of traditional medicine, uh, okay. which was published first in 1613. Well, the Koreans actually invented everything. So right, yes. Well, well, it is a... It is a um, 
it is a precious book for its consolidation of an East Asian medical tradition, which actually, when I teach my courses, I don't like using. I, Chinese medicine is a shorthand term, but it's really an East Asian medical system that has taken from Mongol, Manchu, Tibetan, Korean, Vietnamese medicines. Um, so uh, it's often called Chinese medicine, but it, it was very international from the very beginning. But so these two texts from the very early 17th century, 1596, 1613, cite Rhinohorn as a rare product that was already rare at the time. Let's remember that Asian rhinos only exist in Southeast Asia anyway, and the core area in which ancient Chinese medicine developed is far north in the Yellow River Basin. So it would have been rare from the beginning in which it was used. Um, And I do not think that that beginning goes back to the so-called 2,000 years ago claim that you often see from people who say that this is a traditional medicine. It's at most this 500 years back to so the early 7th. So it doesn't seventh. show up in, in the Shanghai Jing? No, no, no. There's okay. no um, evidence that way back then it was, uh, you know, from the very beginning. Um, this, this, these first textual evidence is in the Li Shijun's Ben Cao Gangmu. And so there's nothing in any of the, the pharmacopias that proceed, that, that come before the Ben Cao Gangmu? Not that I am aware of. Only the Li Shijun's Ben Cao Gangmu of 1596 is the first textual recording. And, and in that text, mm-hmm. what is Rhinohorn supposed to do if, if it's not supposed to give you, you know, a, a, a woody? Or... Right. <laughs> right. So the uh, the direct English translation that I have is from the Dong Yi Bo Gam, the Korean version, which is almost verbatim from the Ben Cao Gangmu, the Chinese one. Uh, it begins with saying the nature is cold, the taste is bitter, sour, and salty, and it is poison free. Uh, some say slightly poisonous, and that's the distinction that the in those early 17th century texts, they made the distinction between the black and the white rhino horns. Ah. Th- that distinction is still made. The best one is the one from a black rhino with a sharp tip and ideally a younger rhino. Um, so there's all kinds of gradations within the world of rhino horn as to what which ones are the better ones. Obviously, the ones that are purchased just as gifts are the larger ones, right. the really fantastically huge front or is it the front or the – I think the frontmost is the shorter. Right, the shorter one. Yeah, yeah. Then it does make this point that is still made by some Chinese medicine practitioners today that the reason the rhino horn is valued is that the most essential and crucial energy is concentrated. What that means is that it's supposed to be the very embodiment of the animal's powerful essence, mm. what makes a rhino this impressive, magnificent, powerful creature on the savannas is – its horn, essentially. And that's how the idea uh, within Chinese medicine is that you can gain some kind of intangible essence from certain products that give you strength, it basically improve your qi, improve your your life essence. Um, and that is something that I have seen some Chinese medicine practitioners claim. They say that uh, rhino horn is, cannot be replaced by any other thing, even though it is strictly keratin. Interestingly, though, it, it, you said that in, in this Korean sort of uh, ersatz mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, version of the Bunzangong, I'm sorry, I'm joking. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in this compilation, it describes it as cold. In other words, it's yin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you would think that it would have sort of a you know virility, a kind of you know yang qi. Mm, um, right. But no, again, it's never been used for um, increasing male potence uh-huh, and sexually. Uh-huh. It has been used ancient, in ancient times. It had a long list of uses. 
So according to Li Shijun's Ben Cao Gangmu of 1596, the ancient uses or the 500-year-old uses of rhino horn were uh, to cure snake bites, hallucinations, headaches, vomiting, food poisoning, typhoid, this is very interesting to me because that's an infectious disease, and demonic possession, which might be most interesting to yeah. the listeners of today, that that is clearly something that we no longer believe in at all. It sounds like a lot of the symptoms that I've experienced since the election of oh, Donald Trump. Likewise, I think I need some rhino horn right now. Currently, it's mostly only claimed that it's useful for fever, gout, and rheumatism that you see in most common literature. Sometimes people say it's used to treat aggressive forms of cancer. And in the terms of Chinese medicine, certain doctors say that it's used to heal illnesses of extreme heat that attack the heart. So, you know, in the logic of Chinese medicine, you have the yin and the yang energies in your body and, and that you, they need to be kept in balance. So if you have excess heat and that heat is so pathogenic that it can attack your heart, that kind of ailment is what it's used for. And rhinohorn is actually an ingredient in the three so-called treasured medicines, um, the most treasured medicines in Chinese medicine today. What are those? So I only know their names in Chinese. Can okay. I give that? So, sure. so the first is the Angong Nyohuanghuan. So the Angong is the, the idea of, of pacifying the uterus. So mm -hmm. it's used for women's uh, obstetrical and gynecological health. Uh, Nyohuang is cow bees or. Um, so that's the primary ingredient in this particular thing, but it also includes rhino horn. The second is Zishuesan. Uh, so uh, purple snow. Mm -hmm. Pill, uh, rhino horn is one of the ingredients, and zhibaodan, so the uh, treasured pill, basically. The names are obviously euphemistic and, and poetic, but rhino horn is an ingredient in all three of those, and they are considered the most treasured medicines. Now, treasure could be both that you value it and that it's very expensive because rhino horn is obviously a rare commodity. Most the, the the best defense I have read about Chinese medicine comes from the man who was the original associate dean at the China Academy of Chinese Medical Sciences in Beijing, and currently holds holds a lot of very high positions in the world of Chinese medicine in China today. This is Zhang Ruixiang, mm -hmm. who says that the animal based products in Chinese pharmacopoeia are less than twelve percent of all of the the medicinal products used. He is absolutely right about that. So, but then he jumps from that into a claim that I think is rather specious. He says that the biggest pressures that are pushing animals to extinction are what we all know, overpopulation, urbanization, human encroachment on territory, uh, destruction of the environment. But in this interesting article that uh, Benjamin Robertson interviewed him for City Weekend, uh, he claims that it's the U.S. and U.K. starting war in Iraq and Afghanistan that pushed animals to extinction more. Hmm. And it's, uh, rhinos don't even exist in that part of right. the world. So when you're talking about rhinos and elephants, that's just a way of detracting from the the blame that China might get. Sure, sure. But I think that's an important argument to see because he's basically trying to refute what he hears in Western media, which can resort to China bashing. And, you know, using this once again, this claim that Chinese medicine is totally anti-scientific and superstitious, and these people are ridiculous, they have these fun funny cultural attachments to medicine. 
But in fact, all medicines include cultural attachments, and they are all, are all culturally bound. It's not just Asians who have cultural attachments to certain things that, that they believe heal them. Let's go back again and talk about uh, what some of the, what is actually driving the demand. So there's mm-hmm. more to the market for powdered rhino horn than its actual belief in its medicinal efficacy. Absolutely. It's a very high-status item, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The typical rhino horn consumer is an elite urban man who already has a lot of wealth and social standing and uses the purchase of rhino horn as a, it gives it as a gift to his social superiors to gain more wealth and social status. Um, so it's and it's absolutely a status symbol. It's about enhancing social standing. And um, a very scary finding in this particular 2013 study by Traffic that was funded by World Wildlife Fund South Africa found that in addition to the current consumers, there's a large group of people who intend to purchase rhino horn willingly, knowing that it's illegal, declared that, yes, they too want to purchase rhino horn because it's something that is valued by their social superiors, people with whom they want to gain favors and social status. Uh, so I think that, um, as we know, with all products like this, you need to have a multifaceted, multi-pronged approach to fighting it, and that has to include something that's directly aimed at the consumers. I mean, World Wildlife Fund South Africa also claims that the fight to end rhino killing, the battleground is in Asia, not Africa. So if I were to go into a pharmacy in a major Chinese city and buy Angong Niu Huang Wan, uh, because my my wife is having um, you know severe cramps or uh, or has maybe just had a, a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the likelihood that I would actually find rhino horn in that? You never would. You never would. You wouldn't see it. It would if you obviously knew Chinese and could read the ingredients on the package. It would say xinyo or xijiao, mm-hmm. which is rhino horn, and it would be the second or third ingredient. But it's powdered. It's inside the pill. Uh, you would never see something that is actually identifiable as a rhino horn. But if I were to do a chemical analysis, all I'd find is keratin. There's mm-hmm. nothing, no other sig- signature no. for that particular. No, and there has been very little scientific research done on rhino horn. There was a one 1990 study done at University of Hong Kong. But that study is not really valuable because they gave rats a large amount of powdered rhino horn and did show that it reduced fevers in rats, as did antelope horn and water buffalo horn. Or human fingernail, maybe. Yeah, right. But the dosage that these rats were given is the kind of dosage that a human being would never take or that is never included in. Um, But I do want to say that chemically the rhino horn is actually unique. It is wholly keratin, whereas other animal horns have a core of bone. Uh And what gives it its strength is that it, it has a lot of calcium deposits in in the center and melanin, curiously enough, to get the horn to resist the, the degradation of the sun's UV rays. Melanin, I yes. mean, as in the, the same yes. sort of pigment that we have in our skin. Correct. Yes. Um, so chemi- in terms of chemical composition, it is unique in the world of animal horns, but it is strictly keratin. But, so conservationists say, if you want the so-called medical effects of rhino horn, bite your own fingernails. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, I shouldn't discourage my son from doing that. Then. Yeah, no, no. He, he might, when he has a fever, you should tell him to bite his nails. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Nicole, what are some of the other properties? You, we were talking earlier, and, and you were telling me about some of the other properties of rhino horn, that it isn't just that it's pure keratin, but uh, what else is, is remarkable about rhino horn? Uh, one particular ecologist, this is Raj Amin of the Zoological Society of London, discovered that a rhino horn is basically includes like a fingerprint. Because it is such pure keratin, the chemical composition of that keratin changes according to the rhino's diet, which is, of course, um, de- determined by its range and where it's eating. So if you can get your hands on a particular rhino horn and do a laboratory analysis of its chemical composition, you can basically locate where that rhino was killed. And the this information, it's like a fingerprint of the rhino horn has been used to track poachers and the particular populations that they're pursuing. Fascinating. Yeah, so it's not it's, just the fingernail, it's the fingerprint. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's all the, the anthropomorphic <laughs> possibilities are, are rich here. They are indeed, and it's not all about penises. Yeah. What is the Chinese government doing now, or what are governments in, in East Asia, uh, let's see, authorities in Hong Kong, in China, mm-hmm. and, and in, in Vietnam, what is being done right now to try to curb consumption of or importation trafficking of, of rhino horn? I think this is a really important issue to point out because this is one of the reasons why just the the kind of bashing or blaming narrative doesn't work. The Chinese government actually banned the use of rhino horn and other endangered animal species products in Chinese medicine in 1993. CITES, the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, banned rhino horn sales in 1976. So you can see that the Chinese government lagged by a significant time period after that. But now here in 2016, it's it's much. Uh, they've banned it a long time ago. So the government, the Chinese government itself, needs help from citizens, from NGOs, from activists to enforce that ban and make sure that it actually happens. So since the Chinese government banned the use of rhino horn and products from other endangered animals in 1993, I really do think, I haven't obviously done a complete survey, but I think that most Chinese medicine doctors are responsible about this. They don't use endangered animal products in their medicines. There's a lot of other medicines to use. And many Chinese medicine doctors that I know have a deep respect for animals and the sense of what we call one health in the world of global health. You know, that animal, human health plant health, the health of our entire ecology is interconnected. And so there's no sense in pursuing and hunting an animal to extinction because that's a supposedly irreplaceable medical product. Like definitely just move on to something else. Um, So I I just want to be clear that it's not, there's no reason to blame all of Chinese medicine for this. I think actually the, the smarter thing is to work with people. I mean, there's even the idea that some, um, you know, rhino horn farms, like people are sustainably harvesting horn from rhinos that are not killed for their horn, but allowed to continue living. Um, You could maybe set up a a situation where you're trading, there's like like a closely monitored legal trade of sustainably harvested rhino horn for those doctors who say that they absolutely must use it for the three treasured medicines and then nothing else. That would, of course, be very hard to police, but it's one way of approaching it. What are we seeing by way of enforcement? Have international conservation groups generally lauded China, or have been, have they been critical of the Chinese government for their efforts at enforcement? That is actually a good question. I don't know very specifically. Um, what I would say about that, though, is that it's important also to remember that there are activists and NGOs and conservation groups 
active within Hong Kong and China. Like there are people in China who care about this as well, in Vietnam, who are collaborating with international NGOs and organizations to curb this. So the key thing to realize is that the buyers are high elites and the sellers are these basically like I don't know what are poachers like. They're like mafia, you know. If they don't have rhino horn, they're going to sell prostitutes, and right. you know. So it's not something that I think is specific necessarily to Chinese or Vietnamese culture. It's a phenomenon that is seen around the world of exploitation. Let's talk about some of the ways in which people have tried to combat. Right. Uh, I mean, we've we've talked about the sort of uh, browbeating approach mm-hmm. and how that has actually maybe created some kind of a backlash. Correct. I'm sensitive to how browbeating may have contributed to backlash these mm-hmm. days after the, the trouble. <laughs> Absolutely. But l- let's talk about Yao Ming, mm-hmm. who of course is, is the ridiculously tall, yes. um, marvelous basketball player who was you know on the Houston Rockets. So since his retirement from playing basketball, uh, he's become a very prominent spokesperson for, for different animal conservation efforts. Uh, well, the first one that he really undertook in any kind of prominent way was against shark's fin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at least from where I see, I've, I've read uh, that it, you know, anecdotally, but also just in terms of of, of, of the, the reports that I've read about it, he seems to have done a very, very good job. That yes. he, was, he seems to have been a tipping point uh, in, mm-hmm. in the war against it. Then he turned his, his attention, and I, I used to see the signs in, in the Beijing subways before I left in, in June. Uh, he turned his attention to uh, elephant ivory and, of course, to rhino horn. But uh, I'm hearing that he wasn't as successful, that, that there, th- this doesn't seem to have produced. Is this because demand is maybe more focused in Vietnam, that it's not coming so much from China? Is it maybe not coming from major metropolitan markets? What's the reason why he doesn't seem to have been as successful with this? So I think there are many reasons why Yao Ming's campaign against rhino horn and elephant ivory is has been less successful than the famous shark fin one. The, the shark fin one, it was a 30-second commercial showing the blood coming from a, a definned shark that's just dying at the bottom of the ocean. It gives the number of sharks killed and the number of them that are um, endangered, pushed to extinction. Uh, and that campaign could be easily Twittered and we chatted around the world with this brief commercial. And it's directed towards middle class consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Middle class consumers have less of a desire to save face. So I think that campaign worked because they could now save face by saying to their honored guests, I'm choosing not to serve you shark fin soup because I think the more moral decision is to to save the shark populations. With the particularly high elite consumers of uh, rhino horn, the story is different. These people are much, much more prone to the responding to their peer pressures. They really want to be in an in-group, and the way into that in-group is by purchasing really high-end luxury goods for their social superiors. So I think that we have to get a different tactic because Yao Ming basically took the same shark fin model, which reportedly decreased demand across China and Hong Kong by some 50%. I mean, it was a massive success. Uh, But he used the exact same model for rhino horn, and it didn't work. It really fell on its head, on its face. And I think that the tactic has to be changed slightly. So with rhino horn and elephant poaching, like elephant ivory at the same time, I think with the high-end luxury consumers, you need to 
uh, not talk down to them and say that what they are doing is wrong because that's not working. Uh, we need to say instead, here's another kind of luxury product you can purchase for your boss, for your government official. Give them an, a two-week safari in South Africa mm. with Vietnamese government buying in, offering them easy visas to South Africa, high-end luxury hotel where they can go and experience the animals in the, the flesh living, experience this uh, exotic time in Africa. And then you, you, you buy face, you save face by that kind of luxury consumption that increases the attachment of these urban elites to nature because that's identified, that has been identified as one of the key problems. They're highly urban individuals and they have no real sense of empathy for animals because they don't have a, a relationship to nature. That's an excellent idea. Did that just do you you hatch that yourself, or is that is I that did uh, this morning? I was thinking about that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Let's hope it takes wing. Yeah, we need to talk to someone in the in the Chinese or in the Vietnamese uh, foreign ministry to get those visas. And what about these ordinary people um, who, mm-hmm. who who are worried about this? What can we do? Who are the right people? I mean, what message ought we be trying to send now? I think there's a lot of things we general people can do about this issue. One is to support conservation efforts with financial donations. There's sites, uh, the Commission on International Trade in Endangered Species, mm-hmm. Traffic, the world's largest NGO working on international trafficking in endangered species, uh, World Wildlife Fund, Wild Aid, Nature Conservancy, all these groups are fighting uh, rhino poaching. There's also Rhino World Rhino Day on September 22nd. You can observe that with your own tweets, Facebook posts, WeChats about I am for rhinos, mm-hmm. putting out information about this because people just need to know that all five species of rhinos are in danger of extinction because of this trade. Um, and just communicate with everyone you know about this problem. Nicole Barnes, thank you very much. That was delightful. And that takes us to the end of our show on Rhino Horn. Loads of thanks to our guests, John Krobler, Shi Yi, and Nicole Barnes. The Seneca Podcast is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks, as always, to Anne La Cheng and Soraya Darabi from Sup China. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.